president and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on SiriusXM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, ETF sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. We have the professor on the phone calling in for some brief commentary. I should note uh, I'm a registered representative of Foresign Fund Services, and the professor is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not a recommendation for any trading strategies, nor tied to the offer of selling investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or affiliates. We had a great show today. In the studio with me is one of my colleagues, my deputies, uh, Associate Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, Brad Crum. Brad Brad, welcome back to the studio. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, Brad was also a Wharton graduate here. We knew each other from our, our days at Penn. Uh, I should note Brad is also a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Uh, we're going to talk to the professor quickly on the employment report, thoughts on the markets. Uh, professor, what did you think of the, the numbers here? Uh, and yeah. uh, pretty... Well, they were strong on the payroll. Uh, definitely strong on the payroll, but the big news, I mean, unemployment dropping to 4.4% is, uh, whoa. Yeah. I mean, the expectation was a one tick up to 4.6, and instead it went down to 4.4, way under the natural rate of uh, the Fed. In addition, the, those that look at the U6 number, that dropped quite significantly. 60, uh, um, excuse me, the uh, U6 uh, dropped from... 8.9 to 8.6. Now, let me just tell you how low these rates are. 4.4 tied the lowest unemployment rate that we had in the last business uh, um, expansion. So if we get one-tenth lower than that, and if we get another 200 or 180, we're going to probably do that. It will break down below the lowest we had before uh, the recession. In fact, the only time in the last 40 years that was lower was the longest expansion in history, you know, which lasted from 1991 to, to 2002, where Greenspan uh, was not aggressive and let the rate all the way go down into the threes. Um, and uh, although that also may have also contributed a little bit to to some of the Internet boom that, that uh, finally brought that uh, uh, expansion over. Um, uh, I mean, there was there was some good news in it. The uh, the wage rate was still a quiet three percent. They revised downward uh, the March number, so actually year over year it's two and a half. This is not threatening. Uh, the participation rate fell from sixty three to uh, sixty two point nine. We need a, with this type of payroll growth, we need a rise in the participation rate in order to keep the unemployment rate steady. And of course, we didn't we didn't get it. We actually had a fall. Um, just to give you a very quick big picture on the labor for, uh, participation rate, during the Obama administration, uh, uh, until the very end, it fell at twice the rate that economists thought it would, um, really bad. It has really now been three and a half years and, and stayed about the same rate. So it's caught up to where economists back in uh, 2006 uh, and five were actually thinking where it was going to be. So we had a, a big fall during that, 
it, it stabilized, but it isn't going up. And stabilization is not enough, given the uh, thrust of the labor market at uh, at the two hundred thousand level. Only eighty thousand are being added by demographics. That's one hundred twenty thousand. The only way that it gets absorbed, and it is being absorbed by those uh, lower uh, unemployment rates now. So my feeling is, you know, looking at this, the, uh, you know, basically the June hike is uh, absolute. Um, Bullard, uh, James Bullard, says he'll go along with the James hike. You know, he's a super dove on the long-term natural rate. Uh, there are a few others that might the, – the, the fly in the ointment to that is the uh, what's going on with oil. And uh, we had a little flash crash on oil this morning where uh, WTI actually fell around uh, below 44, but – uh, it seems maybe that's about, at least a temporary bottom. It's at, at, at 46.10 now, up uh, one and a quarter percent. Uh, rigs uh, continue to go up. Expansion of U.S. Pr- product use. Uh, obviously, you know, OPEC said we're going to keep it at 60. <laughs> uh, it's nowhere near 60. Uh, U.S. is adding more than uh, they had anticipated. I don't know if they can get any more uh, on that. So we may be looking at a 50 oil rather than a 60 oil, which is going to uh, dent a few of the oil companies' um, earnings, definitely make it a little bit harder to um, uh, keep it down. But heating, air conditioning, and gasoline uh, in the U.S. will benefit be, uh, because of it. Yeah, all interesting commentary. I, I knew you were going to focus on the 4-4 from uh, the Fed Fed perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what's any? Does it give you any sense of the longer term trends here? I mean, do, do you think we're we're sort of looking for two well, to three I, hikes I still this think year? We're looking at we're looking at. I still think they want to do two hikes. Um, you know, uh, you know. Uh, actually, the the count the first quarter now looks below the point seven. It looks like point three point four. And this quarter looks like three, three, five. We're not even averaging an average to the first half. You know, uh, it does. It really looks like we're going to be subpar GDP growth in the first half of the year. But I mean, there's a lot to go. Um, uh, of course, we, we know uh, about the victory in the House for the Obama Health Plan, which does free up money. Uh, however, I think we're in inning one or maybe the middle of two on this health care. Um, you know, the Republicans only have 52 votes in the House. Uh, already Rand Paul has said he doesn't like a lot of things. That's one and one or two a defect. That's it. Uh, if they get it so they like it, the House may it only won by a couple anyway. So, I mean, this is, uh, this, this, this battle is just beginning. Uh, this is not like, oh, wow, this is, now the road is paid with victory. So the Obamacare repeal is not is is just uh, step one and not the most difficult step uh, of of that. Um, the worry is Goldman Sachs put out a, a notice that this is going to delay corporate tax. Cor- corporate tax reduction is the biggest thing that that the market wants. Um, uh, more than personal tax uh, reduction corporate tax reduction and repatriation. Now, on top of that, uh, we did have good earnings in the first quarter. No question, earnings were good. And for the first time in a long time, we actually had 50 per, 50% of the S&P companies that have announced so far, which is about 80%, have either maintained or raised their second half guidance. 
that's very positive, obviously, also. So, you know, the earnings is coming in. And, and you know, it's interesting. The long bonds at 235, started at 235. It got a, you know, a little vowel around 830. Um, but, um, uh, it, you know, it's still, even though oil is up now, uh, it's, uh, CRB is down, commodities are down, and, and, and as a result of that, um, uh, I mean, uh, commodity prices are not neither the tenure nor the commodity prices are signaling the Fed is behind the curve. Mm. In fact, they're probably signaling the Fed is a little bit above the curve right, right now. Um, but but I know how the Fed thinks. But the 4.4 unemployment rate uh, and the U uh, the U six uh, going down as much as it did uh, that's gonna that's so to speak trumpet. Yep. And uh, it, it, in my opinion, will lead to a June high unless we get a real collapse of commodities, you know, uh, in 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 the next period. I mean, we still got a lot of time. We're at the beginning of May, so we still got a good, you know, six weeks of data uh, that that are coming in. So uh, uh, there's a lot of stuff. But given given this rate here, uh, I think the Fed goes in in June, um, and then we see another three months. We continue to 200,000, 180, and unemployment. Unless we get a participation rate rise, unemployment will go to 4.2 and 4.1. I can't believe there won't start wage pressures at that point. Yep. Uh, and that those wage pressures, thank goodness, they've been quiescent at this at this level. Um, but we're not getting productivity growth. Productivity growth negative in the first quarter. It will be positive this quarter. A lot of that's inventory buildup, but it's still way too low to drive, you know, uh, 200,000 uh, without inflationary pressures. Let me ask you, uh, change the, the subject for for a moment. I, I was, uh, there's more and more people, I mean, well, everybody's been talking about the CAPE ratio, extended valuations. I was having some conversation with people on this, uh, and I shared some of your work on the different adjustments to earnings that you can make about the, uh, both the total return version of the CAPE, or, which accounts for diff- changing dividend payout ratios and, and may lead to better earnings growth over time, but also how you looked at NIPA profits, uh, so the national income product profits versus just the traditional profits, mm-hmm. which give distorted earnings pictures. Somebody said, you know, if you're looking at the S&P 500, um, is that giving a, um, you know, NIPA maybe a broader measure of the economy, including more small cap small growth small. companies and just it's large cap? all firms. It's an all firm. Yeah. Do you have any right. view of that, how that might change your, have you done work on, on that a little bit? Well, I mean, uh, I, it does give all the firms, so it adds the, the, so to speak, Russell 2000 and the 500 and the Russell 1 that are not there. S&P is what, 70, is it 77, 80% now market cap? Um, something around there. Yeah. So you do want to use, I think, a, a broader measure. The big thing, again, the big issue I talk about was the total collapse of earnings uh, because of the new rulings in the Great Recession. That's a, and since Shore takes a 10-year average, the 2008-2009 earnings are going to be there until 2019, and they're going to distort the earnings down and therefore artificially inflate the P.E. ratio. And a second thing, no account for earnings being lower than normal. And, uh, you know, I, I, I well pointed out that at, at these earnings level, at, excuse me, at these interest rate levels, into, at these interest rate levels, a 20 P.E. is not at all unreasonable. A third made issue, which uh, um, one should remember, 
uh, and you say in the PE was 15 back in 1871. Tell me how many people could buy a uh, total market index with, with for, for five basis points and totally diversify their risk. There wasn't that. And we didn't have an index fund until obviously Vanguard in 1970. So, so in most of the, most of that period, the real risk of the stock market to the average investor was much higher. If he or she tried to get a truly diversified portfolio, uh, I'm sure that the broker would be charging one to two percent. So instead of getting the six point seven, they're getting four point seven, close to five, and close to five with today's costless indexing would uh, exactly correspond to a twenty PE. Sure, makes no note of that. I think I, I've I've actually published on that issue. I think that's a. In fact, that was the one issue I even convinced Jeremy Grantham of. Uh, he's, and he's a big fan of the Cape ratio, but he said, Jeremy, you're right. I, I now have an upward tilt of what I think the equilibrium uh, PE ratio should be as a result of the tremendous reduction in the cost of uh, stock diversification. Very good, Professor. I, I know you're, uh, you're 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 running here, but thank you so much for your comments here today. Thank you. Very good. Uh, so, Brad. So, uh, let me just we we can reflect on anything you heard from the professor. Uh, thoughts on the employment report outlook. So, the professor thinks we're going to do one hike in June. Um, you know, as you think about the employment reports or just the market setup today, how are you? As you know, you've, you've focused a lot of your time on the bond market. I mean, how do you think about the bond market today? Sure. Yeah. So, I would say that the the market largely agrees with the professor's comments that we're we're effectively at a done deal in terms of an interest rate hike in June. Um, I think one of the more interesting elements, I think that the way that consensus has evolved this year is that you would, to the extent we see a continuation in a lot of the economic momentum that we've seen, um, you know, resurging with, with this most recent labor report, is that you would see an, an additional rate hike in September, and then some discussion or paring down of the Fed balance sheet um, in place of another potential rate hike. Uh, at the end of the year. So so from that perspective, you know, a, a very strong labor report. Um, you know, I, I think there's been a lot of focus on, you know, the potential softness in wages and, and what that necessarily does to the Fed's calculus. But I think they've been very clear about this idea that it's not so much about individual data points. It's largely about the trend in the underlying fundamentals. Uh, and so from that perspective, you know, it, it's a strong report, um, but you're largely not seeing too much reaction from the bond market. I think that there's a, a few potential reasons for that. Um, even though there's greater comfortability in the potential outcome of the election um, this weekend in France, um, you know, from a, a, a market practitioner perspective, it maybe doesn't make as much sense to add risk going into the weekend. Um, therefore, you know, if you came into this report long bonds, you've got uh, a fairly limited um, amount of incentive to sell them. And so that's why I think you're seeing a fairly muted reaction so far. Yeah, no, this year, I mean, the European markets are, are interestingly, you know, they've certainly right after the first round of the French elections, we saw a huge pop. They, you know, people thought uh, Le Pen's chances of winning this election this weekend can be interesting. Next week, if we get the Le Pen surprise, I mean, it will be interesting day on Monday to see all the market reactions. Um, the euro's been been grinding a little bit higher recently, um, really on, I think, on, on ideas that she's not going to win, um, that Macron's going to take it over. Um, but you, you're seeing pretty robust markets across Europe. Um, 
with them outperforming handily the U.S. markets this year by three, four percentage points across most of the European countries. Any any thoughts about what's going on there? No, I mean I, I think that um, coming into this year, you know, the the sentiment was largely very bearish on European markets, and and um, you know I know internally we made some arguments that that really the idea that economic information just needs to stop being bad. It doesn't need to be particularly good in order to have some of that upside surprise. Um, and I think one of the things that's very interesting is that, you know, in a lot of the European markets, you know, earnings have been great in the US, but they've actually been very, very strong in Europe as well. And so it's it's largely a fundamental and sentiment shift that, that I think is is taking a lot of European risk gets higher. Yeah, I mean, we, it's, it's been a while since we've seen positive earnings revisions coming out of uh, Europe this year. They have been trending higher. The last five years, they've been just continually trending down. European earnings have really underperformed U.S. Now, this year, the first quarter robust, we have this 15% move up higher in U.S. quarter. You know, if you look at last year's quarterly earnings versus this year's quarterly earnings, looking track 15 to 16% higher. Europe is also, you know, turning around, turning the corner, um, selling at lower valuations. The bonds there at historically low levels. We think about U.S. being a, a low yield, but in, in Europe, they're even lower yields. What do you think about the European bond market? Yeah, um, I, I think this is largely a, you know, a, a fairly consensus view that that if you are going to see some of these economic upside surprises, that, that it doesn't make as much sense for European bond yields to be as low uh, as they are. Uh, so I, I think that we've already seen a, a fairly rapid shift in sentiment uh, on on that end of things. Uh, obviously, there's been a lot of um, conjecture about if you'll start to see tapering uh, out of the ECB. Uh, I, I don't believe that that's our base case. I, I feel that that Draghi has been very clear that, you know, them having internal discussions about that is is more or less planning for the future, and it's not something that's necessarily imminent, but but we'll certainly um, have to keep quite uh, quite close, uh, uh, you know, focus on, you know, any developments on that front. Very good. Let me just do a, a reset here. You're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio with Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. I've got Brad Crom, who's my deputy, associate director of research. I was some tree here in the studio, another Wharton grad uh, alongside me. Joining us now, we're going to have Brian Westbury, who is the chief economist at First Trust Advisors. Uh, Brian, welcome to our program. Jeremy, great to be with you and, and with you too, Brad. Uh, so, Brian, I, I hear you're in transit on your way across the global, doing some global travel. Where, where are you heading to? I am actually headed to Seoul, South Korea. I will mm. get there early on Sunday. I have to fly from Orlando to uh, San Fran and then on my way over to Seoul. So I'm heading over for a uh, Mont Pelerin meeting, which is an international group of economists, uh, a group that was started by Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek wow. years ago. And uh, so we have a, uh, a regional meeting in Seoul. It's been scheduled for a while. I uh, kind of can't wait to get there. Interesting timing to be going over to Korea. Um, <laughs> right in the yeah. crosshairs of a lot of the, the politics right now. It, yes, absolutely. And in fact, uh, uh, Mont Pelerin, we have, uh, uh, we have quite a few. Well, a couple meetings every year, uh, and when we have regional meetings, uh, which this is one of, we we always spend two thirds of our time talking about sort of the globe, uh, and and in general, and then uh, a third of our time talking about the actual region. So one of the 
panels that we have, uh, and this may seem almost out of date, uh, but this meeting was planned nine months ago, uh, is about uh, uh, Korean uh, unification or reunification, mm. um, which I, I can't wait because obviously things have changed quite a bit in just recent months. But we will uh, we'll have the president of uh, South Korea with us, uh, and uh, we will be talking about all of the things that we hear about every day. I, I, I can't wait. I think it's a it's a it's an incredible opportunity for me and perfect timing. I guess some people think it's not safe, but uh, uh, my my working assumption is no one wants to die, uh, even if you think they're crazy. So uh, um, I, I think I'll be okay. It's a pretty good working assumption. It sounds like we got you the wrong week. We should have been getting you after you came back. But, <laughs> yeah, I'd be uh, glad to come back. All right, we're gonna have to check in with you again yeah. soon. Um, but no, so give us your your big picture outlook here. Um, you know, from what I've heard and read from you, um, you know, I, I have some senses, but we have we had the economic reports this morning. Um, you know, we talked to Professor Seal just to start the show, but he's focused on the 4-4 unemployment rate, says that's locking in a June hike. Um, what What's sort of your sense of, of the trends we're seeing from both the unemployment rate and then wage pressures? We haven't really seen wage pressures, but I know you have some might have some comments there as well. Sure, absolutely. So just in general, Jeremy, and uh, just to p- remind everybody where I'm coming from, I, I believe, and, and I look back at this past eight years, that we have and that we're we're living in one of the greatest periods of of technological you know revolution that we've ever seen and you you could say this almost every decade going back for you know thousands of years probably but but as we know technology accelerates you know now we have the fracking the genome the cloud smartphones tablets apps all of these things and i believe those are the developments that are pushing growth Uh, but at the same time uh, that horse, the, those those uh, those thoroughbreds of technology, have to carry a jockey, and in in my view, the jockey is the government. And uh, we've had higher tax rates, more regulation, more government spending and redistribution, and that's why uh, instead of growing three four percent per year, we've only been growing two percent. I I am not a great stagnation. Uh, I, I don't believe in it. I, I believe productivity is rising faster than people think. Um, but the reason the economy is not uh, re- being rewarded is because a lot of that uh, uh, that productivity is being drained off by a bigger government. Now, having said that, uh, here we sit. I, I want to see better policies before I truly forecast a stronger economy. So I, 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 I think people are excited. So all the surveys, ISMs, and they're getting more positive. Um, but but the, the jobs number today was kind of right in line with what we've been used to in recent years. Yes, the unemployment rate is getting down there. And yes, I do expect inflation and wage pressures to, to pick up. Uh, but that would have happened, I think, anyway. And if we get any tax cuts, if we get... Uh, more regulatory reform and uh, possibly a little bit of spending reduction, uh, I think this economy could shoot to three uh, or a little bit above percent growth uh, pretty quickly. Uh, But I'm waiting to see actual policies get passed by both houses of Congress and signed into law before I truly raise my GDP forecast. I think the Fed's going to raise rates uh, two more times this year. I wish it was three, but uh, they're a long way from being tight. 
Yeah, we and we still have this global monetary policy accommodation. We're still getting a lot of, you know, very low rates around the world that's keeping our rates in some ways constrained. Um, I mean, what's your general sense? Um, I mean, do you, the tax policies is everybody, you know, market participants love the idea that we're going to lower corporate taxes. But, you know, there's this idea, well, will it be revenue neutral or not? Will they try to offset it in some capacity? And there's all sorts of ways they're talking about offsetting it. Um, how do you, if you know, you're putting your crystal ball on because we know you can make perfect predictions, but how, <laughs> how are they, how do you see them negotiating? How, where do you think they're going to do the trade-offs? Do you, you know, I'm just curious where you think what they're going to try to get through. Yeah, I, I, so this is obviously all of this, this politics is harder to forecast than the economy, I think. Uh, uh, there's a lot of pressure, uh, and I think some of it's coming from the White House, some of it's coming from uh, people inside Congress to uh, truly dynamically score things. So, so in other words, it, it, if, if we cut corporate tax rates, uh, I, I think it's, I, I personally don't think it's hard to forecast that we get faster growth. And so, uh, uh, and if the U.S. economy were to grow 1% faster uh, in, the, in the next 10 years, we would, that would raise $2.9 trillion in, in additional revenue. And I, and I think that goes a long way to offsetting uh, any uh, costs that uh, the Joint Committee on Taxation or the Congressional Budget Office kind of scores into this uh, legislation. So um, my view is that, uh, I, and what I hope, is that we uh, truly dynamically score uh, uh, these things. I mean, gosh, you look back, the last time we raised tax rates, uh, th there was this, uh, these forecasts of much more tax revenue than we actually got, and, and I think that's because tax rates hurt growth. Uh, tax hikes hurt growth. And so, um, I, you know, we'll have to wait and see. Um, I, I, you know, the best of all worlds was, would be that they offset the cost by cutting the size of government. Um, that's always a very difficult thing in Washington. So at least I'm we're stopping the growth that of it. we score it right. Yeah, no, it's it's an interesting comment. I mean, now part of it is also like what happens to interest rates because if interest rates move up with the increase in growth, and we have to start financing our, you know, the debt that we do have with higher rates, I mean, that, that could, you know, your, your assumptions on what happens to interest rates is also a key part of that variable there. Right. It, it absolutely is true, Jeremy. And I, and I'm, you know, and that, and so when they put the uh, CBO puts all that in their models, etc. The one thing that I always, uh, 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 caution's not the right word, remind everyone of, uh, of is that if interest rates go higher, it's typically because growth and inflation went higher which means revenues uh, uh, accelerate as well. Um, and at the same time, if it truly is for more growth, then that also means there's less pressure on spending for, for welfare, food stamps, uh, kind of income support activities. Uh, and, and so it's never just a, a static model where you have a 1% higher rate and it costs you this, because that's how much debt you have. You have to include all of those things. So my belief is that if you truly put all of that in dynamically, uh, that the U.S. can take uh, rates, you know, three, three and a half percent, kind of where the Fed thinks is normal uh, right now, without having any major upheaval in the budget, even with these tax cuts. Uh, if, if I believe, if you dynamically score it correctly, 
um, and by showing what growth does to revenues over time. Yeah. Hey, Brian, it's Brad. Um, I had a question. One of kind of my key ways of, of kind of corroborating what's going on in the economy is looking at the relationship between the short end of the U.S. yield curve and the long end of the U.S. yield curve. So, so basically the trend that we've seen so far year to date is that the yield curve has flattened uh, in the magnitude of anywhere from 15 to 20 basis points, um, kind of coinciding with this slowdown in uh, Q1 GDP. From your perspective, you know, let's, let's assume that the Fed ultimately decides to hike in June. You know, really, what do you, what do you think is, is maybe going on with the yield curve? Is it potential that, that we see it start to steepen back up with the idea that growth and inflation um, may be accelerating just around the corner? Um, and that's the reason why the Fed is trying to stay, uh, you know, ahead of the curve in terms of hiking. Right. Brad, great question. You know, a lot of this, I've heard more and more people talking about uh, uh, the, the conundrum. Remember when, when uh, uh, Greenspan's raising rates and, and the mortgage rates weren't coming down and, and uh, or excuse me, weren't going up. And, and so it was a conundrum that the yield curve was flattening. And uh, I, I, I do not believe that that is uh, happening here today. Uh, the reason is back then, we had some deflation in the in the U.S. economy, not inflation. So as the Fed tightened, it actually uh, exacerbated that. Today, I, I, you know, it's pretty clear we don't have deflation. Uh, it's hard to say right now that we're going to have a massive increase in inflation, but but it looks like pressures are building a little bit. And so that means uh, uh, that as the Fed raises rates, I do expect the yield curve to uh, to 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 either steepen a little bit or at least not flatten anymore. And when I look back over this last couple of months, you know, you pointed at uh, the weak first quarter GDP. I'll, I'll, I'll take that. That probably is one of the reasons that the yield curve flattened a little. Uh, but I would add one other step to it, and that is that people were saying, well, the economy is now weakening, so the Fed won't hike rates. And and then and then when people saw a shallower path for short-term rates in the future, they brought down long-term rates. Now we get a strong employment report. Uh, we've had some strong ISM and housing numbers, and I think that uh, that that's reversing itself. So now long rates are headed back up, not rapidly, but they've bottomed and they've kind of ratcheted up a little bit. So the yield curve has steepened a little bit in the last couple of days. Um, but I, I do not look for it to flatten or invert um, in the in you know in the next five six Fed rate hikes. We we still have a way to go before they're normal. Very good. We're we're talking with Brian Westbury, chief economist at First Trust Advisors. He's going to be with us for the bottom half of the program as well. We got Brad Crum, associate director of research at Wisdom Tree, in the studio with me. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We'll be back after a short break. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree. In the studio, I had Brad Crom, Associate Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, and we're joined by the f- by the phone with Brian Westbury, Chief Economist at First Trust Advisors, talking about the economy here on Jobs Report Day uh, and Brian's outlook for tax policy, how it's going to have a robust economy, how the government side has been a, a shackle on weighing down growth, and we're maybe freeing up some of that. 
Um, Brian, I, I, we sort of talked high level. You want them to do some dynamic scoring of how these tax changes will impact the economy. I want to I want to try to pin you down on some policies and see what you think might might happen. I mean, I think one of the big things in the the Brady, um, you know, the Ryan Brady plan on on how they want to see tax policy changes. You know, the revenue offset, they talk about, you know, this very well-liked border adjustment tax, um, you know, where I, I saw Bernanke weigh in this week saying, you know, this is really one of the most badly marketed tax policies that it's really all about trying to get people to tax the revenue where it's earned. And, it, and, and if you're starting from scratch, it would make a lot of sense, but it's hard to get people to sort of change the model. That's one where that we can offset a lot of revenue loss from lowering corporate taxes. Do you think that one, um, you know, we have some fierce lobbyists against it. Walmart's group, um, you know, the the retailers are against it. Anything, any chance do you think that's going to go through? Yeah, I, I I actually think it's it's badly marketed because it's a terrible tax policy. Mm. It's trying to it's like trying to sell new Coke. It's just an awful product, and uh, it's it's impossible to sell. So they had to yank it, and I hope they yank this. It is a uh, no country in the world has a border adjustable tax like this. They do have value added taxes, uh, completely different beast. Uh, the the border adjustment people they tell us, oh, you know everything's going to be fine because the dollar will adjust. Well, you know, so in other words, if you uh, if if you import something, uh, you don't get to deduct it from your t- so basically it costs you 20% more. And if you export something, uh, you you don't have to pay the tax, so you're you you have a 20% benefit versus uh, selling it in internally. Um, and and then they tell us that well the dollar is going to adjust penny for penny, percent for percent. Uh, and it will rise exactly 20%, which offsets uh, the the benefit to exporters and uh, offsets the cost to importers. That's what they're trying to say. And and if that's the case, why would Boeing want this so badly? Uh, I I don't I don't buy it. If the dollar goes up by by 20%, then it costs uh, Europeans 20% more to buy a a Boeing aircraft. Um, even though Boeing has to pay 20% less tax, the price doesn't change. So why does Boeing care so much? And I think they care because the dollar will not adjust. Uh, in fact, uh, there's value-added taxes almost everywhere in the world, um, and uh, those currencies, uh, there, there's no way that anybody can prove to me that they actually went up in Germany and Greece and uh, in in Mexico, in Brazil, by the exact amount of the value-added tax. It's a slightly different tax than a border adjustment tax. But it, it you can't prove it historically. It it all works on some kind of chalkboard that these 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 uh, the peop- the proponents of the border adjustable tax have. Yeah. But there's no way in reality to prove that will happen. And if it doesn't happen, uh, then it is a massive cost for U.S. consumers. Uh, this uh, 20% uh, uh, tax on imports. Um, Americans, you know, uh, I I think want more jobs in the United States, uh, uh, want more production, but this idea that we can fulfill all our needs producing in our borders, it makes zero sense. Um, International trade is an unambiguous good uh, for the globe. I'm, I'm actually flabbergasted 
that uh, that uh, Paul Ryan and the Republicans uh, came up with this proposal. I do not understand what's wrong with just normal tax cuts. Tax rates are too high. Uh, but really what this is is a revenue grab. And, and in my opinion, it's because they don't want to cut spending. Now, what's, and, what's interesting, uh, I, I've heard, and we had Alan Auerbach on the program. He's one of the guys who originally designed some of this. And he actually frames it a lot as, as partly a value-added tax, but also really that it's going after removing incentives for companies to transfer their patents to Puerto Rico, get zero tax back to the U.S. Um, so I think in, in their minds, it's a little different than um, just this import issue and the dollar offsetting those import issues. Um, it's really more about not allowing these transfer taxes where people can get zero taxes back here to the U.S., which seems theoretically to be more of a, a palatable discussion point that you don't want people to take advantage of the tax code to just pay zero taxes from Puerto Rico. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's a, there's 99,000 different reasons our current tax code is bad. I mean, I, I think that yeah. I'll, I'll totally agree with that. Replacing it with a worse tax code, in my opinion, is crazy. Uh, I, 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 I'm not part of the debate. I'm out here in the private sector. We, we don't import or export a lot, so I don't really have a dog in the fight other than the economy. Uh, but what's wrong with uh, getting rid of all deductions and going to a territorial-based tax? It's still, it'll capture those people in, in Puerto Rico. It'll be just fine. Um, and, and, uh, and the other thing is, is that all these countries that put in value-added taxes, so in Germany and in France and you know, everywhere else, uh, they they have a value added tax and they have a corporate income tax um, and and I and I think if you know it it's it, and and yeah you can say it's twenty percent and then somebody says well let's just raise it to twenty one it's only a penny and then it's twenty two and then it's twenty four and I remember when European value added taxes were ten eleven twelve percent and now they're twenty three twenty four percent it's a it's a it's a very easy tax to to raise. Uh, because it's unseen, uh, I I just I I you know all these years Republicans have fought against a value-added tax, and now they come out with this. I I'm you know I. It's gonna be I one of the interesting points this year. Um, all right, so well, let's move on because we talk about that topic a lot on our program. Um, what is, so maybe if we try if we take the tax policy, the growth forecast, you think we have a, a pretty good, robust economy potential. I mean, how do you tie that to a market view? I mean, do you have a, a sense of where valuations are? Do you have a sense of, you know, are we getting to, you know, people worry about U.S. markets being just overvalued? I mean, what's your view there? Right. Yeah. So uh, we use, I, I use a capitalized profits approach. It's a very simple approach, about as simple as you can get, really. Take corporate profits, uh, discount them by the 10-year treasury, uh, you you could use the ten year corporate if you want, but but I, I we have uh, great data going back a long ways for the ten year treasury um, and spreads have a have a nice little average, so you're not going to be waylaid by using the treasury yield. Um, and if you use that model, uh, the market is pretty significantly undervalued today, partly because the ten year treasury is way below uh, where it would be uh, normally looking at the current growth rates, current inflation rates. And I think that's because the Fed's holding rates down. So what I do is I put a 3.5% 10-year yield into our model. Uh, I use corporate profits from the, from the NIPA tables, from the IRS. Uh, and when you run historical uh, data versus th- those two things today, it says that the market, the U.S. stock market, uh, broad index, S&P, or just even broader, 
is about 20% undervalued. And uh, and so, and, and this year, earnings, gosh, right now, consensus earnings are 130 to 133, something like that, which is, you know, 15 to 20% growth over last year. So I, 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 I'm talking about the potential for 30 to 40% growth in this market over the next two to three years. I think the, and, and by the way, that's not including any benefits from the tax cut. So right. uh, we use after-tax earnings, uh, and if after-tax earnings go up, uh, that'll mean uh, this model says even better news ahead. Very nice. Now talk about, I mean, this is interesting, because I actually touched on this briefly with the professor. He's done a lot of work on the CAPE ratios, and he uses a NIPA, a NIPA profit number also, trying to adjust you know, where people go really uh, go really wrong on the CAPE ratio is some of the write-downs that impact the reported yeah. earnings. Is that the sense of why you're using NIPA profits as a time series for this valuation model, or do you have any other comments on why NIPA versus a standard report earnings from S&P? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I, first of all, I am not uh, saying that S&P profits are wrong or, or, or are manipulated in any evil, awful way. However, uh, S&P reported profits uh, are, they, 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 they do include um, what we would call, I mean, well, different accounting, uh, uh, different accounting measures and uses and adjustments that 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 NIPA NIPA does an economy wide adjustment and I'm looking at economy wide profits, not just from five hundred. I want to look at the whole thing, small business to large business, because it's an it's an indication of overall profits for the economy. The second reason I use it uh, and it's not for any uh, a particular individual reason, but is but but it's because if companies report to the IRS that they earned a dollar, they have to pay taxes on it, and and so I I, I like I like that I I, I like if they're going to pay taxes on it, then I know they really did earn it, and and so it's not an accounting uh, mirage, so to speak, uh, and and again I'm not trashing S and P numbers, but but I just like I like to look at what companies report to the IRS. And then comparing it to the sort of the CAPE model, this idea of 10-year trailing earnings, I, 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 I have a really hard time believing that number today because it includes, it still includes uh, 08 and 2008 and 2009 when we had massive write-offs from the auto companies, from banks, from a lot of uh, industry sectors because of the crisis from from uh, commodity producers oil companies and and I think it artificially drags down the earnings numbers when you use when you look back 10 years I would if you want to look back 5 I think it's a lot better model um I, I just look back uh, I look at the current quarter actually but um but 10 years includes that awful crisis the panic yeah. the once in a 100 year panic and that's why I think it, it says the P.E. ratio is higher than I really think it is. I love that because it's so out of consensus. I mean, the, the consensus today is just that we have zero to negative returns. I was you know, writing with somebody online today who believes, yep, we're going to have zero returns for the next five years because, you know, the, the CAPE ratios are elevated. So I, I, love, right. I, I love that view that you have there. Brad, what do you think about his idea, 3.5% on the 10-year as a model, It's that the Fed's keeping it low. Uh, I mean, is that, what do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's probably uh, a bit higher than, um, you know, where we maybe see markets heading uh, as a, a long-term average. 
Um, you know, but look, we, I think that everyone's expectations for where terminal rates are ultimately going to end up at the end of this tightening cycle um, are, are much lower than, than where they have been historically. Um, so, you know, three and a half percent long run average, maybe a little high, but but not completely out of. Uh, yeah, it all depends on this GDP. If we get the acceleration in GDP, I think Brian might be expecting. I mean, Professor Siegel said we had two percent as our terminal Fed funds. You get a one to you know one to two percent, maybe get three to four percent at the end of this cycle. But we're not. It doesn't seem like we're getting to three quickly yet. Um, you know, he's toning down his three percent call for this year. Brian, do you have a sense where rates? Do you have a do you have a forecast for rates? I mean, you said three and a half percent is a normal, a normalized bond yield that we might get if we the Fed stops. Uh, Compressing it. I mean, what's your outlook on that ten-year time horizon-wise? Yeah. Um, so, uh, real simply, my model again, I use a simple approach to these uh, these interest rate levels, uh, and that is, I look at nominal GDP growth. You know, so over the last two years, we've had two percent real growth. You know, I, I mean, we just had a quarter of 0.7, but the average is two. Uh, inflation has averaged about one and a half. Uh, so put those together, two plus one and a half nominal growth. I think over the last two years is three point four percent. Three and I'll just sure. call it three and a half for ease of conversation. So three and a half uh, nominal growth. It, it says that the ten year historically ought to be around three and a half. Sometimes it's above it, sometimes it's below it, and it it may end up below it today. I'm not saying that's impossible. Uh, however, I do expect that if we get some some uh, uh, fiscal reforms. Let's just leave it at that. You know, tax cuts, reg cuts, spending cuts. Then we could have three percent growth. And so then you have three. And if inflation's now two, then you, all of a sudden you're at five percent nominal yeah. growth. Something and, a lot of people I'm, aren't prepared for today. Right. And so I'm now I'm not predicting five percent rates. Don't don't hear that. <laughs> but but with five percent nominal, they become a real possibility. Sure. Now, what do you think about Europe uh, and the international markets? Um, from a, I think that's more consensus that international be lower valuations than the U.S. There, the bond yields are even lower than the U.S. So, on these kind of earnings yield bond yield models, you would say you know more opportunities. But I'm curious if you if you track the international markets, if you have a view on on their prospects. Yeah, a little bit. You know, so Germany. Uh, let's the big the big Kahuna. Uh, uh, one, one and a quarter, maybe percent real growth. Uh, they've had, you know, kind of a half a percent inflation, maybe, maybe a little more now, but, uh, so nominal is, is, is less than two. So no wonder their yields are lower than ours. I've never believed this argument that our yields have to equal because every country has different growth rates, different inflation rates, different tax rates, different trade deficits, you know, or, or surpluses, you know, so. So I've never believed they have to equal, but I think their rates are lower because nominal GDP is lower. Uh, and then just uh, just super briefly, I, I here here's the kind of the way I look. So and I never say these names right, but in France you got Filon, Macron. I, I'm probably saying I'm butchering them, and then Le Pen. And if you add up the vote totals for those three, it's over 60 percent. And if you add up all their politics, kind of put you know, the, the Margaret Thatcher together with the complete anti-immigration socialist Le Pen and then the sort of the middle of the road, Macron, you put all of them together, kind of add them up, divide by three, you get Donald Trump. <laughs> and and, and I'm, I'm, I laugh about that because I'm not saying that they're going to have a governance or, you know, politics that looks like Trump, but 
it looks to me like the pendulum is swinging to the right in France. Uh, I think it's swinging to the light right in the UK with Brexit. Uh, Germany has already moved a little bit. And so I, I think growth can pick up. And if they get a little spark in their economies, uh, that's what can be the, the thing that generates uh, finally uh, the fact that people look at Europe as an investment that they want to be in. And European stocks right now are cheaper on a capitalized profits approach than U.S. stocks. So I really like Europe today. Um, uh, SAP and, uh, and Siemens, uh, they're the equivalent of Oracle and GE. They're really well-managed companies. And you can, right now, today, you can buy a dollar worth of their earnings for a lot less than you can buy a dollar worth of Oracle and GE earnings. And one of the interesting things, I mean, Trump's been all about make America great again. And if you look at U.S. exporters versus U.S. local economy stocks, the exporters are absolutely sort of, you know, crushing U.S. oriented stocks. And Europe is really a lot more emerging market focused than even the U.S. So they have a much more global revenue base over there. Definitely much more exporter oriented. So the EM is emerging markets being really outperforming U.S. is actually helping Europe, you know, despite even sort of sluggish growth profiles over there. Any sort of tilts that you like to make uh, across the the markets? You think about U.S. markets or or anywhere? Yeah, you know, um, I I think I, I, the the way I kind of look at this, I like. So when Ronald Reagan was elected, I, I, I sort of think in broad strokes, and I and I. I try not to go down into, you know, whether Trump's going to do this tariff or that tariff. I don't think he is. I don't think we're going to get protectionist. Um, but when Ronald Reagan won and the U.S. policy started to shift, and I know he was an outlier sort of in terms of how much he was able to get done, top rate from tax rate from 70% to 28 and things like that. But but when, when the United States starts moving toward more free markets, more capitalism, even if it's a slight move, the rest of the world tends to follow. You know, it's just like auto companies. If I put in an extra cup holder, you're going to do the same thing. So, so 140, 50 countries cut tax rates during Reagan's eight years, and we had a global boom. Um, I'm not trying to say that Donald Trump is Ronald Reagan. He's not. Um, however, if we move toward deregulation and less growth in government and 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 we do get some corporate tax cuts, I think the world will tend to follow. That's good for emerging markets. That's good for Europe. Uh, I I also think the U.S. is undervalued. So right now I'm having a hard time picking. Um, I just like equity markets sort of around the world. And I know there's risks, but the the bottom line is, uh, uh, especially around the rest of the world, stocks are really cheap. So I think this is a great time for uh, equity investors, both uh, domestic and international. Yeah. Hey, Brian, it's Brad again. Uh, I was actually just curious. We talked about um, what impact a bat may have on the U.S. dollar, but let's go with the base case that that doesn't end up happening. You know, what is what is kind of your outlook for for where the dollar might be going from here, with the idea that we do see an acceleration in uh, in U.S. economic activity? Right. This uh, this is a. I mean, just a. It's such a hard question to answer because, I mean, well, I, I think all of us have, you know, if we crystal balls, been, Brian, come on. <laughs> yeah, we've been market watchers for a long time, and the dollar's just, I, I don't know, I have the hardest time. What I will say is that in the U.S., we, we have $2 trillion of excess reserves. So that's 
potential dollar growth, right? So, and and it's potentially dollar weakening. Uh, however, the the banks haven't expanded the money supply as much as quantitative easing has expanded the Fed's balance sheet. So that's why I don't think the dollar's weakened a ton. But there's always that potential. And if we have deregulation uh, of the banking system, there's the potential that the money supply uh, 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 actually accelerates because banks are more willing to, to lend. They don't feel as constrained by uh, the regulators and capital requirements, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, at the same, so that on one side you could argue that the dollar weakens a little. On the other side, uh, better policies, uh, usually tax cuts and um, and and uh, and a, a bigger private sector tends to lead to a stronger dollar. So when I net all of this out, um, and then and also include the same kinds of issues on the European side and the Japanese side, I would argue that the dollar. Uh, is is likely to to be flat to up somewhat in the years ahead, but not a massive amount. I'm not looking for a big move either way, um, but I, I think there's forces going either way. I hope I explained that well enough. But it's it, it, it there's so many different forces pushing the dollar right now that it's really hard, I think, with any kind of uh, certainty to predict a big move one way or another. Awesome. Brian, I appreciate your comments. I appreciate you staying with us for an extended conversation today on your way to Korea. I hope you have a, a great conference and I'm sure you come back with a lot of, lot of interesting insights. Absolutely. Jeremy, great to be with you. Brad, uh, great to be with you as well. So we've been talking with Brian Westbury, the first uh, a chief economist at First Trust Advisors. I've had Brad Crom in the studio with me. He's associate director of research. Work somebody I work very closely with. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, director of research. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. I'd like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Daniel Bruno. I uh, mentioned you can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast also every week. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast. We'll be right back.